So let's turn together to Psalm 85, please. Psalm 85. Lord, thou hast been favorable unto our land. Thou hast brought back thy captivity of Jacob. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all their sin. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Turn us, O God of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. Amen. And we know God will bless the public reading of his word. Let's unite in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come before your great throne of grace this morning in the precious and the peerless name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to thank you, Lord, for who you are, the greatness and the majesty and the might of God. And we thank you, Lord, that as the great creator, provider, and sustainer, that thou hast demonstrated thy love to mankind in the giving of thine only begotten Son. We thank thee, Lord, for his death on the cross of Calvary. We thank you for his resurrection. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that he has ascended to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would be poured forth this morning. We pray for a real sense of thy presence. We pray that you will put a hedge around us, Lord, Put a hedge right around us, Lord. And we pray that your presence would just fill this house. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and speak to us. Envelop us, Lord, in your presence. Envelop us, Lord, with your love. And speak through your precious word. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Bertie asked me a few months ago to come and speak on the subject of revival. And I would have to say that there is no subject as dear to my heart as a Christian as the subject of revival. I was converted when I was about 20 or 16, rather, coming 17. And then when I was about 20, I was given a CD, or rather a tape for the older folk. You'll remember the tapes. The young ones don't remember those. But I was given a tape, and I listened to that tape, and it had a profound effect on me. And it was the Lewis Revival. It told of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit from 1949 to 53 in the Isle of Lewis on the north west coast of Scotland, what's called the Outer Hebrides. And as I listened to that uh, tape, I realized that there was so much that God could do that I had never witnessed. Indeed, I had never even heard of. 
And for the first time, I became fascinated, not just merely intellectually, but spiritually with the subject of revival. It led, through circumstances, me to begin to seek God in a deeper way as a Christian, to begin to consider the will of God for my life, to begin to weigh up what I would do with my life and what direction it would take. And at that period, I commenced to go to a prayer meeting where I first began to fellowship with Bertie way back in 1987. And during that period, that season in my Christian life, I recognized that God had begun to do something in my life. It wasn't merely me deciding to do something. It was a real sense of being arrested and apprehended by God. And one of the things that happened at that time was I began to pray in a new way. And I began to experience God in a way that I had never experienced God before. And it was very transformative in my life. Those were very, very precious days. And I knew that they were, even at the time, as literally we prayed without ceasing. And I remember going to Bible college for a year in Edinburgh to the Faith Mission. And I remember frequently during the night, which wouldn't really have been permissible because it was quite a strict college, certainly at that time. But I can remember times when the Lord would waken me up during the night. And I'm sure some of you won't understand this, but I can remember the Lord very much impressing me that uh, I was not to sleep, but very much I needed to go and pray. And I would go through the corridors like wee Willie Winky through the Bible college to find a quiet place where nobody was during the night, and there I would pray. And I would pray until the burden that the Lord had laid on my heart had been discharged, and that burden had been released to God. And then I would experience great peace and know that it was time to go back to bed for studies were coming in the morning. During that period, I was really taken by the Lord into the whole theme, subject, desire, and longing for revival. And that abides with me to this day, and I believe, as I have stated many times, with all my heart, that there is going to be a revival in the island of Ireland. And I believe that many of the political problems and the issues were many people are concerned and frightened And many people have different views and have their trust in different people and parties and so on. That I believe that God, who is above and beyond all people, all parties, and all nations, that that same God is preparing to do something that no politician is anticipating. Because when God comes down, my friends, everything is different. We have never experienced in our lifetime revival, any of us. We have had good campaigns. We have had gospel missions where people got saved. 
These are all wonderful things, but they are not revival. Revival is hard to explain. I remember in the Outer Hebrides, my wife was from the Isle of Harris, which is in the Outer Hebrides, and she, when she became a Christian in 1986, her mentors had all been converts of the Lewis Revival. And therefore, she was very tuned in to what revival was and certainly had little experience of evangelism because the people all around her only talked of revival. And I had the privilege of meeting many of those people during the subsequent years after we were married when we traveled every year to the Isle of Lewis. And I made a point of meeting many of the people and when you met them, they carried the air of another country. When you ask them what revival was and what it was like, sometimes they would wail up and begin to cry. Sometimes they would say, I can't explain it. There are no words to define it. They all had a unique reaction when you mentioned the revival. They said, there's nothing like it today. Nothing like it today. It was a time when God came down. It was a time when God visited the community. When God not only visited in the church, but he visited in the local stores. That he visited in the police barracks. That he visited on the roadside as the people were walking and suddenly they were mightily convicted of sin and they went into the peat bogs and knelt and cried to God for mercy. When people who originally were indifferent to the things of God started to cry out suddenly, is there a Christian that can get me to God? These were very common and typical things that happened during the revival when God came down. Here in Psalm 85, the psalmist asks an interesting question. Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee. It is evident from the verse that the psalmist obviously was a believer and that he had experienced times of divine intervention in the past in his life when God had come down, when God had revived and given life and vitality and power But here he recognizes the past has waned. The things that God has done in the past are now evaporated. And so he cries, will you not do it again? Will you not visit us again? But I want you to notice that it is while this prayer for revival is both fervent and desirous of another move of the Spirit... There is a recognition that it is divine and it is sovereign. He said, wilt thou not revive us again? There is a turning to God in a way that sends forth a message from earth to heaven that earth is unable to perform this. We can have campaigns. We can have missions. We can send out advertisements and these things we ought to do. But in revival, it is a sovereign act by God himself intervening in a community, a district, or a nation. 
He said, Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? You see, friends, there is obviously something absent as this psalmist is praying. He said, There is no longer joy in the house of God. There are no longer psalms of praise ascending from hearts redeemed, but a deep heaviness and a deep sadness and a deep dearth has settled over the people of God. And the psalmist is acutely aware of this and it leads him to petition God that God would visit again so that the psalmist himself and all the people of God would rejoice. You see, friends, in seeking for revival, it is not merely for my little church or group to be quickened or blessed. It is for the work of God to triumph. It is for the opening of new Bible colleges. It is for a sudden surge of young men and women to the ministry. It is a great desire after the things of God. It is a purifying of the nation from sin. It is a turning from wickedness and a changing of law and a changing of government as the people turn to righteousness and begin to gather in those who lead over them, men and women of righteousness. Revival is all-encompassing. It touches every part of society and it does it in a wonderful, purging, cleansing, sanctifying way. And if ever any people needed revival, it is the people of Northern and Southern Ireland. When I speak of them, I speak as one, as a people. I speak of them as a people who are lost. The South of Ireland has not had a spiritual revival, a national revival for at least 700 years. My dear friends, in Northern Ireland, there have been quickenings and awakenings that have occurred. In the 1920s, there was a revival. In 1859, there was a revival. But these revivals, for numerous reasons that we wouldn't fully understand, were largely contained to the nine counties of Ulster and never touched the three other provinces. But God loves the people of Ireland. And the people of Ireland need the gospel. And they need it in its purity and its simplicity. So that they can turn from idolatry and turn from all false views and false beliefs. So that they can receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And that this land would become a template of what God can do for nations that bow to him and yield to him. My dear friends... When should we begin to really seek God for revival? When should we as individuals begin to really seek God for revival? The thing that I am acutely aware of is that I cannot create this in my own heart, nor can you. But God does lay down stipulations for the movings of his spirit. And God says, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. God has left provision and promises that can be 
pled at the throne of grace for God to move. And every parent, every father, mother, every child, and every person who knows the Lord should be pleading the promises of God at his throne. Well, when should we be crying out and praying then for revival? The first thing that should be apparent or become apparent to the soul is an absence of the presence of God. When there is an absence of God's presence from the sanctuary and from the house of God, that should be the beginnings and the warning signs that there is something terribly wrong. Now, I am so grateful over the many years of being a Christian that through all those years I have always been in a prayer meeting all my life. A prayer meeting where people recognized the need for the presence of God. Not every prayer meeting has that. Sadly, not every church prayer meeting is aware or considers that whenever they go to pray. But my dear friends, it is imperative that the presence of God is in the midst. And on many occasions in prayer meetings over the years, I remember times when we met for prayer and the prayer meeting was dry. And everybody prayed earnestly, but it was dry. And when the prayer meeting was over, we would say to one another, well, that was a very difficult prayer meeting. I don't know what was fighting us. I don't know what... Powers of darkness were arrayed, I have no idea. We didn't seem to really make progress that we're aware of, but remember that we didn't break through to God this week. We didn't break through. And so what we would do is we would return the next week, and before we would pray, we would say to one another, well, you remember, we didn't break through last week. So let's really seek God tonight. And we might have another bad prayer meeting, a really tough prayer meeting. And at the end, we would say, well, that was tough going the night. We, di- we didn't break through tonight. And all of us understood the importance of breaking through to God. And so we would maybe lay aside a time to fast We would certainly be more alert in our Christian walk during the week. And when we would all come the next week, we would be very aware that we need to battle. And so one after the other, every individual would not be praying for granny's leg or praying for the budgery gar with a sore eye. But they would be praying, Lord, we need to break through to you. We need your presence to invade this space where we are. We need to know that you are consciously with us. And one after the other, everybody would pray in the same vein, and then it would happen. Suddenly, there would be some kind of a manifestation, an awareness of God opening a portal, an awareness of darkness being driven back, an awareness of heaven coming down on earth and filling our souls with joy and filling our hearts with peace and with a witness and an awareness that God was now with us. My friend, that must be maintained in any church or group prayer meeting. 
Otherwise, you will quickly lose God and not know that you've lost him. There must be constant invasions of the presence of God to the place of prayer. I sometimes wonder how many dear Christians, and they do go to prayer meetings, and I don't want to, I don't want to be negative about that. But it seems the Lord never breaks through. I don't know how people do that, but they do. When God's presence is withdrawn, and Hosea the prophet said, I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offenses and seek my face. This was God's warning to Israel in Hosea as they were given to idolatry and grieving the Lord by their lives. He said, I will go and return to my place. God says, I'll not be with you in the way that I could be. Not only when God's presence is withdrawn, but friends, here's the greater tragedy. When presumption is widespread. Presumption is widespread. You see, there's a man in the Bible, and every child and adult will know the story of Samson. That Samson was the man set aside by God to deliver the children of Israel from the Philistines. And he was careless. He was anointed of the Holy Spirit. He was chosen by God from the womb. But he was careless and he flirted with the world and he flirted with women. And uh, God gave him many warnings and God was very gracious to him, but he kept playing. He kept playing. And he thought because he had played so long that he would never be caught, but it happened. And the day came whenever he sat at Delilah's knee... And he told her all the secret of his strength, and she cut off his hair. She cried, the Philistines be upon you, Samson. The Philistines be upon you. And the Bible says he got up and shook himself. And he said, I will take these Philistines as in the past. I will defeat them. But he wished not. He didn't know that the Spirit of the Lord had departed from him. It's bad enough when the Spirit of God has departed. What's worse is when he's departed and you don't know he has departed. That's worse. You see, the story's told of the Lord Jesus as a child of 12 when he had been to Jerusalem with his parents. And they had all fulfilled all that the law required at the temple. And his parents were returning with the 12-year-old Messiah. And all these group of believers are probably singing. And they're talking about the scripture. And undoubtedly their conversation is good. And they're certainly enjoying themselves as they all return en masse to their various villages and towns. And they had traveled a day. 
And the Bible says that Mary and Joseph at the end of the day began to inquire about Jesus. They went to their relatives and friends frantically. Did you see Jesus? No. The Bible says they supposed that he was in the crowd. They made a supposition that Jesus is with us. But they were wrong. He wasn't with them. They assumed that because the singing was going on and because the good talk about the Bible and they had been at worship, they just assumed he'll be there. But he wasn't. And it was three days before they got him back. Jesus is easier to lose than to find. My dear friends, so often over the years I have sat in prayer meetings at missions and various events and I have heard people pray these words, Lord, we thank you that you're here. And I have thought to myself, well, I really wish I could say amen to that. But I can't agree with you. I I don't sense a conscious sense of the presence of God. Yes, God is there as he is in all places at all times, but but not, not with blessing, not with his power, not with his anointing. When should we seek God? When contentedness prevails. The Bible says, Woe unto them that are at ease in Zion. The children of Israel were led by the Lord to go from Egypt, and then they crossed the Red Sea, and then they got to Mount Sinai. And and they were there at God's bidding, and God had led them to that place. But after a period of time, the Lord spoke to Moses and he said, you have been at this mountain long enough. You've been here long enough now. This, this stopping post that you got when you came out of Egypt and over the Red Sea and you came to, that was my plan. But God said, you've sat here far too long. It is time to go north. And dear child of God today, You have obeyed the Lord in seeking to leave Egypt. Through the waters of baptism, you have obeyed the Lord. You have sought to follow him, but it is possible that you are at a mountain that God has said, you have been here long enough. It is time for a new journey with God. Time is running by. Life is not forever, my friends. When contentedness prevails. You remember Jesus speaking to the church of Laodicea. He says, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and of need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. 
Jesus said, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone, any Christian hears my voice and opens the door, he says, I will come in. I'll come and fellowship with you. If you hear my voice, if you open the door, I will come in. My dear friends, most days of my life, if not all of them, I always ask the Lord, Lord, give me an appetite for you. Give me an appetite for the things of God. Because this world is grabbing for my attention. This world, it's politics, it's, it's secular news, it's moral decline. All those things are attacking and taking my mind. The gossip and all the things that go on every day. They're all coming to defile and take over my mind. I must have within a, a cry in my heart, Lord, I need you every day. I want my heart to be after you each day, Lord. Give me that appetite. Fill me with desires for you and for your will and your ways. And, and like the little chorus you remember, the older ones I'm sure remember, we used to sing, lead me to some soul today. Teach me, Lord, just what to say. Friends of mine are lost in sin and cannot find their way. My dear friends, we have to Prime the pump, as it were, in our hearts each day. Because this world will cool you down. This world will take away your desires. It'll take away your gifts. It'll take away your abilities. It'll kill your soul. And it'll leave you dry and wizened up like an old reason. The way to combat that is to be crying out, Oh God, come and revive me. Come and move in my heart, Lord. Come and, come and stir me. Do in my life whatever you want to do, Lord. And contentedness prevails. When holiness is ignored. And for some people, the word holiness, what are you talking about holiness? Let me explain it to you very simply. Holiness means wholeness or health. You know, if I'm ill... I go to the doctor. If I have a problem and I know it can't be easily resolved, my automatic reaction is I'll need to go to the doctor and I'll need to get help because I don't want to be sick. I want to have as good a health as I can. And anybody that's normal here today, you'll do the same. You want health. Well, holiness is simply spiritual health. It's being healthy in your relationship with God. It's being right with God, not just that you're born again and you're God's child, but that you're a child who's walking in fellowship with God, that you're taking God by the hand in all that you do. God calls us to be holy or to be healthy spiritually. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter 1, Be ye holy, even as I, the Lord, am holy. God says, be healthy. Now, that health can't come simply by our efforts. It can't come by just reading your Bible and saying your prayers, as important as that is. My dear friends, the key, a vital key to spiritual health is when we decide in our hearts before God in solitude when no one's watching and when no one else is aware that we're able to say honestly to God, God, I can't live this Christian life. 
I don't know how to live it. I always make a mess of it. There's so much sin in my life. There's so many areas where my life's out of control, whether it's lust or fear or unbelief or worldliness or bitterness or unforgiveness, whatever it might be. And you have to bring that to God and say, God, I have made a bit of a mess of this Christianity, but Lord, I'm letting go now. I'm letting go. I'm just handing everything to you, Lord. I'm giving everything I have and am, Lord. And some of you might be young and starting out in life. My friend, young, starting out in life, give everything to Jesus. Give everything to Jesus. Don't hold back. Don't hold back. Just a few weeks ago or less, I I buried my brother. And I said to my wife and the other members of our family, I said, I'm 56 years of age and I've suddenly realized this is my last run now. This is my last run now. It'll not be very long. And I want to do God's will. I want to do God's will. That's all I want to do with my life. And I say to every young person, listen, you, the, the world is crying for your ambition, your skills, your money making, and you're good at this, that, and the other, and the world commends you for it, and you're drawn into it. But I want to tell you, my friend, when you come to the valley of the shadow of death, it'll not matter that how smart you were. It'll not matter that how wealthy you were, or how good in business you were. It'll not matter that, my friend. Because you come in with empty hands and you go out with empty hands. While you can give everything to God, do it. Do it. Older people, older people, come on, you've got to somehow feel similar to me. Do you not realize that time is running by? The days of youth are over. The days of childhood, that's long gone now. This is, this is perhaps for you the last stretch. Do you want to leave a mark for God? Do you, do, do, you want to, do you want to be known as a man or a woman who prayed, a man or woman who loved the Lord, a man or woman who was passionate to follow and, and lead others to Jesus? Is there anything greater to do in your life, I ask you? The Bible says, they that turn many to righteousness shall shine like the stars. Oh, my dear friends, we need to put God first in our lives. Put God first in your life. I want to tell you something. I'm telling you this from experience and the authority of the word of God. If you put God first in your life, God will start to show up in your life. He'll start to show up. Just give him time. Give him time. Don't try to help him. Just abandon everything and say, God, do a miracle through me. Well, we've really mentioned the next point, when prayer is anemic. (laughs) When prayer is anemic. Samuel said, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray. Prayerlessness 
is sin. You might not be aware of sin in your life. You might say, Alan, I don't, I'm not aware of sin, but are you praying? Are you praying? If you're not praying, you're sinning. Prayerlessness is sin. Say, Alan, prayer's hard. I grant you, prayer's hard. But that's why I'm saying to you, and I have told you, and I'm speaking as plainly as I can to you this morning to help you and to encourage you to to pray and to ask God to to get you among people that pray. There is uh, three prayer meetings a week going on in this church, and and that's a wonderful thing. That's a wonderful thing that, that you are praying, and I want to encourage you to pray and to keep seeking the Lord because it may, it may be hard at times and you wonder, is there anything happening? But believe me, things do happen, and if you hold on, God will come through. God will come through. And so I encourage you to join, whether it's in a home whether it's your home and you say, listen, let's, let, let, let's pray and ask God in our home. Let's dedicate our home to God. Let, let's begin to spend time and give time to God and maybe get some other Christians of like mind and get them around and let's pray for our children. Let's pray for our, our families. Let's pray for the boys and girls in the community. Let's pray for our neighbors. My friends, there's so much to pray for. There's so much to pray for. You say, well, what is true prayer? True prayer, my friends, is a mother with a sick child. You know, you can say your prayers. We've all done that. But then you can pray. When a mother has a sick child, she gets up in the morning, and the first thing when she wakens is, I have a sick child. She'll either have the child with her or she'll go to see the child and she'll see to the needs of the child, maybe whatever it might be. But the mother has to do dishes. The mother has to maybe go to work. The mother has lots of things to do. But but all that's going on in the heart of the mother is the child, the child, the child. That's prayer. That's what Paul meant when he said pray without ceasing. It's it's God's burden on your heart. You carry it all the time. And and when you're driving in the car, you're just bringing it up to God, whatever it might be. You're just, as as you're lying in your bed and you can't sleep at night, you're bringing it to God and, and you lay it before his throne. Praying, my friends, praying and praying. And the more you pray, the more you desire to pray. And the more you're with others that want to pray, the more you're ignited to pray. When should we cry out? When tears are absent. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. What makes you cry, my friend? What makes you cry? I know when you crash the car, you might cry. I know when you break that ornament that was sentimental, you might cry. Understand those things. But I want to ask you a thing, and I'm not here to put condemnation or guilt on you, but I want to ask you, do you ever cry 
over people that are not converted? Do you ever cry over family members that are not converted? You say, well, Alan, I don't know how to do that. And I agree. I, I wouldn't have an idea how to do it either. But God knows how to do it. You see, when you give yourself completely to God and you abandon yourself and invite the Holy Spirit to take complete control of your personality and every part of you, the Holy Spirit will begin to do what he wants through you. And what you'll discover is that you'll begin to cry. But it'll not be, it'll not be your tears, it'll be his tears, but you'll be aware that he's working through you and you'll be crying his tears. And although you may have great sorrow in crying, yet there'll also be great joy, which is quite a paradox, but there'll be great joy inside because you know that God is working through you and that God is upon you and that he is near and it is his burden, it is his desire Remember many years ago, a man who, uh, we went to prayer meetings in an old caravan. And this dear brother, we were chatting to him, and he had come into a new place with God. He was about maybe 40 years of age. He had come into a new place with God. And before the prayer meeting, he began to chat, and he said, something unusual has started to happen to me. And we said, well, what happened to you? And he said, well, I was sitting in the car the other night, and I saw people, he says, just going in and out for their shopping. And he says, I just began to cry. And he said, I I couldn't understand it. I just began to cry. And he said, the tears welled up in me. And he said, I was crying because, because I knew many of them were not saved. That's what I'm talking about. You can't produce it yourself, but God will do it for you. God will give you. If you just leave yourself available and say, Lord, give me your burden. Now, now, my dear friends, when tears are absent, there'll be dryness. But let me conclude. When division and controversy are widespread in the church, there is always a need to cry for revival. So often, sadly, in our country here that has had many times of great blessing, we have become a very sectarian people. Now, it is true, a great missionary said to me one time that the sin of the nation becomes the sin of the church, and that is true. We live in a country that is contentious, a country that is sectarian, and that enters into the DNA of the church, and if it's not repented of, then it becomes a barrier to blessing, which has happened. But it's not God's way. My dear friends, God is not interested in any particular denomination. And I want to say something to you that it took me many years to learn, and that was I believed when I went to a little brethren assembly many years ago. I was told basically that we were right and everybody was wrong and God helped them. And if you join us and you're with us, you've it all sorted. I'm sure there's a few of you have been in little groups like that. One of my problems always with that was as a Christian was why was it that some of the other churches that weren't right, how come God was blessing them? That was always a problem to me. If we're right and they're all wrong, why does God save them among them? Why does God anoint their preachers? 
Why does God send his presence in among them if they're all wrong and we're right? It's always a problem to me. Until God began to work in my heart and he began to clear my mind. You see, friends, you'll never have a clear mind until you have a clean heart. When your heart has been purified by the blood of Jesus, when you're sanctified and set apart unto God, God begins to clear your mind. You begin to see things totally differently. God's thoughts began to flood in. And the things you couldn't see before then, they become so apparent. And you see, let me tell you something that might be revolutionary for some of you and others, you know it already. And that is, it's very simple. God goes wherever he's wanted. Simple as that. Any group that seek God with all their heart, whether they're Anglicans, Methodists, Presbyterians, and whether you like to hear it or not, it's a fact. God goes where he's wanted. If he finds a people that are repentant and turn away from sin, and people begin to plead and weep and acknowledge the wickedness either of their group or their church or their denomination, and they lie on their bellies or they kneel down in the pew, and they begin to cry out to God for the power of the Holy Spirit, God will come to those people. So don't get fixated on any wee tag. It's pointless procedure. Because God doesn't see that stuff. I know we like to crow and blow about it, but let me tell you, God's not in it. He's not in it. The story's told of ducks. They were in cages. The ducks in the cages had big, big, long tops, just like wire going up the outside, but there was no top on the cages. So one duck was here, and the other one was here, and the other one was here, and, and every so often they would just go quack to each other. Quack. That was it. But they stayed inside their cage. Just quack. That's it. And for years that went on, just the quacked at each other in their cages. But then, my friends, a great flood came. And as the floodwaters came, the ducks began to rise. And as the ducks rose up and up and up, as the tidal wave of water came, so the waters rose up and up. And eventually, eventually, they got the ducks right up to the top of their cages, and out they popped. And then they began to mingle with each other. And they began to be together. And in every true revival that always happens. People are released from their spiritual cages. They're released from their denominations. They're released from the threats of their ministers. Because the Holy Ghost brings the great waterway that takes them out of their cage. And they can't stay anymore. Because God has sent a deluge from heaven. My dear friends this morning, I encourage you to pray for revival for all of Ireland. I encourage you to bow your head in prayer either today or tonight. And I encourage you to say these words to God. God, I give my life to you. I give my business, my money, 
all the things that are top priority in my life, they won't be God anymore in my life. But you'll be God. And I ask that you would do a miracle through my life. And that you would use me for your glory. Let's bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that God the Holy Spirit will use the word of God this morning. And Lord, that you will speak on to us even when the gathering, the meeting's over. And I pray that people in their hearts and minds will decide in a new way to give all to God and to follow him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.